0: Welcome back to the Night Shift Podcast. Before we get into this week's investigation, I want to thank Nocturne Studios, right here in Echo City, for seeing potential in my show and offering to support the production. And I want to thank all of you for giving these stories a chance. I'll be honest, when I started recording this show a month ago, I never expected anyone to listen to it. It was 1am. I was bored at work, watching the reflections of the neon lights dance in the rain outside the shop. It was one of those nights where I questioned why a coffee shop would bother being 24 hours at all. I figure I can tell why you're all here. Why you're listening.
1: Mr. Fenton. Huh? Take a seat.
0: Having Volter, the Angelo Volter, in the first episode was... Unexpected. I didn't set out to get answers from him with the hope it would draw in an audience. I wasn't really planning on even trying to draw in an audience. I just wanted to hear another side to the Alpha story, to fit a few more pieces into the growing puzzle. And despite all my trying, it was pure chance in the end that I got his voice into the show. I know, you're all dying to know how that chance meeting turned out. Don't worry, hang on, and you will find out. Last time we touched on the subject of alphas. It's obvious from everything I learned that I was only really seeing the tip of the iceberg, and I think if I find a way to pursue the subject further, I could dedicate five more episodes to these preternatural lab rats. But I didn't set out to make a show just about alphas, and they're not the only subset of individuals found out there. There's people with arcane lineage, there's shades, even the mythical Valkyries. Today I want to focus on shades. A group of people found in Ekor, not only, but I've lived in the area my whole life and can't speak for other places, with tragically little research into their existence. How do they come into being? What is the reality behind the stigma of being a shade? And what's the truth behind the story of the controversial shade murderer Charles Delaney? All that and more, coming up. My name is Sebastian Fenn, and this is the Night Shift Podcast. That's
2: too
3: short to get it all right First time
2: around At some point, we have to ask ourselves, are we comfortable with these shades, these mutants, sharing the streets with our children, walking around, spreading veil sickness? You can't say that! (laughs) We don't know that for sure. It's not proven that they... Not proven. We don't need science to tell us what we can already see with our own two eyes. These people are dangerous, and there's no way of looking up who they are. I'm just saying, it's about time something changed.
0: If someone had you at Knife Point and demanded answers, how much do you think you could tell them about shades? I dare anyone to try and get answers out of me at Knife Point.
2: They try that and they've
0: got another thing coming. That's North, our head barista. Knowledge about shades varies greatly from person to person, as do opinions. Some people know nothing, others are afraid. It's sadly not uncommon for people to direct anger towards shades if they meet one. I don't know. They're just regular people, right? They start as regular people, and then the Veil gets them. You make it sound like the Veil abducts them. Like aliens. Well, sort of. That's not quite how it works. It definitely involves contact with the Veil in one way or another, but no one has ever proven exactly how this facilitates the physical mutations that Shades go through. There's a lot we still don't know, just like we don't know a whole lot about the Veil itself. During the biannual veil lights, or as they're more scientifically named, velostis Lucerner, or during random spikes of activity like anomalies and veil rifts, basically any time the veil is active, it tends to have a devastating effect on anyone and anything that gets too close to it. It's destructive to technology, which makes it exceptionally hard to study. And on people, well, that's how shades are created.
2: There was that case years back when I was still a kid. The serial killer Shade. (laughs) I can't remember much about it, but I do remember that at the time, a lot of people were talking about it. Is he a killer because he's a Shade, or is he a Shade who just happens to be a killer? I suppose you would have only been, what, eight at the time? Fifteen! I'm not that young, you menace.
0: The affliction is rare, both considering contact with the veil is rare, and that not many people who come in contact with it survive the sickness that follows. Those who do are changed forever by the physical mutations it causes, from huge bone spurs to scales to graying skin. In the most extreme case that always seems to make the rounds online, one shade's whole body had turned translucent to the point you could make out the shadows of their organs. No two shades look the same, and some are so shocking to look at that people seem to forget they're just... human. And then there are others who barely look different at all. Those with unusual eyes or physical changes that are easily hidden might pass in absolute anonymity. There's some suggestion that the more severe the sickness, the worse the mutation. Although that isn't proven. The controversy that surrounded the case of Charles Delaney was a point never raised before into the public's consciousness. Does the transformation into a shade change anything cognitive? How does it affect someone's mental state? And could it be considered a viable cause for aggression or violence? It's largely because of Delaney's case that shades are a threat in the eyes of the public at all. Before that, they were ghost stories. Something you told your kids to keep them indoors during the veil lights. Because if it were safe to go outside, everyone would. We'd sit out under them like we do under meteor showers.
2: I totally would. I mean, the veil is undeniably stunning. My mom always calls it the great green aurora. There's something haunting about it being so beautiful and so dangerous at the same time.
4: Uh, Um, excuse me.
0: Hi, what can I do for you?
4: You're recording these answers? What is this for?
0: Oh, it's a podcast. Today's topic is shades. If you'd like to give your opinion, it'd be more than welcome. If it's okay to use your voice in the show...
4: Uh, Oh, um, well, there's a lot of stigma surrounding them. Some would even call it a curse.
0: I'm speaking with one of the coffee shop regulars. We'll call him Quinn. It's a little, a lot, surprising, actually, that he's initiating a conversation. Don't get me wrong, Quinn's a polite guy, he'll respond if you talk to him. But honestly, if he had his way... He'd come in like he does every Friday, sit at his usual table, and not talk to anyone. I think North is the only person to ever successfully hold a conversation with this guy. Until now. I don't know if I'd call it a curse. That's kind of far. I mean, maybe if we're talking about how messed up it is the way some people talk about them.
4: Some people think it's a form of punishment, inflicted on those who deserve it.
0: I guess. I've heard all sorts punishment from God, some kind of fallen Valkyrie, possession. But only if you believe any of that.
4: Uh, well, what do you believe?
0: I believe being different is difficult. Being judged for a body that you have no say in is worse. There's people who would kill a shade for what they are. I don't think there's any way of telling who would do it.
4: It's always the moment. Just before gunshot, you try and try to rise, but you cannot. Uh, Margaret Atwood. I like to believe she speaks to the lack of comfort one feels within the body they inhabit.
2: I think it's wrong to judge how dangerous someone is based on how they look. I mean, look at me. I may be five four, but I'm a mean, lean killing machine. I am a hundred percent power in a tiny package. <laughs>
0: <laughs> there's not enough research to confirm or contest it but a lot of people are wary of shades and those people would say it's for a good reason
5: it's contagious as hell if you come in contact with a shade you're going to get Velsic or worse, you'll turn too
0: that's Justin, our general manager Nightshift has a policy of acceptance for everyone and he upholds that the thing is, people will find any reason they can to hate things that they don't understand Mostly it's fueled by fear and ignorance, but those are pretty powerful weapons. The sad truth is, it's far easier to hate something than it is to learn to understand it. It sounds like you feel pretty strongly about it.
5: Anyone who says otherwise obviously hasn't been near one. sickness is nasty.
0: Have you had it before?
5: Not me, but I've seen it. Think of the worst flu you've ever had. Then add in convulsions, hallucinations... You ever witness someone's veins glowing green? It's like the veil is trying to burn them up from the inside out.
0: Yeah, I've seen it too. It is not nice.
5: Don't get me wrong, I don't hate them or anything. I'm sure they're just as nice as anyone else. But it'd be more considerate if they could stay the hell away so they don't get anyone else sick.
0: The little research that there is on them has identified the changes they experience as a rapid mutation of cells into, or at least the term that gets thrown around is, S-cells. The mutations differ from person to person, but the cells are the same. Veil sickness occurs from a virus-like microscopic strain, which is eradicated when the body fights back, just like it would against the common cold. In shades, the virus isn't eradicated instead mutating permanently into S-cells. The stigma surrounding it tends to force shades into hiding, which is probably a large contributing factor in why there is so little research. Another is how few people are willing to get close. It's kind of sad, really. But what's really interesting is that this S-cell mutation is not dissimilar to the changes someone goes through to become an alpha. The resulting cell structure isn't the same, but considering Leaning on Volta's interview about alpha prime here, the alpha serum alters the genetic makeup of a subject by creating additional cells. This so-called evolution is just a nicer way of saying mutation. There doesn't seem to be much out there comparing the two, but I did find a research paper from back in 2007 entitled, brace yourself for this one, The Limitations of the Human Body Through Both Natural and Engineered Human Augmentation from a man named Carl Yorkson. From what I could find, Missy Yorkson does not have a doctorate, just a heavy interest in augmentation. There were several articles from the scientific community that seemed to share the sole purpose of discrediting Missy Yorkson's research and sullying his name. But after several mind-numbing hours listening to a lecture about his paper, I do think there is some merit to his discoveries, and to his commentary on Shade's. He presents an alternative opinion to any I've seen. Here's an excerpt from one of those.
6: Since the death of magic, civilization too has mutated. It changed first from a society of arcana into one of industry out of necessity. Today we live in an age of information, of invention, where industry exists solely for the sake of progress. It is no longer a revolution. If we are to mutate again, if we stand any chance of evolving beyond today's society, we must embrace the revolutionary once more. Augmentation is the future. If the Alpha Serum is not within the grasp of ordinary people, we must consider the alternative. Natural evolution. Those touched by the veil.
0: I reached out to Mr. Jorgson on his website, but I've not heard anything as of this recording. But considering the similarities, and the idea that these cell mutations could be akin to human evolution, let's get back to last week's conversation with, as some of you were calling him, Dr. Sexy, Angelo Volter. I gave him the cliff notes of what I'd learned about the street drug Hunter that supposedly gives users temporary alpha powers.
1: I'm mostly concerned about the danger a substance like this poses to the general community, and I admit I'm curious as to how it was created.
0: I've been informed it's not unlike the concept of hysterical strength, except that's never been replicated in a lab, so...
1: Not consistently. What? It hasn't been consistently replicated in a lab. Unless a result can be produced at a certain level of consistency, it cannot be called scientific fact that doesn't mean it has never happened.
0: Okay, fair enough. Is that what the process is behind the Alpha program?
1: People have paid me for the privilege of asking that question. I think you know the answer.
0: You can't divulge that.
1: (laughs) I cannot divulge that information.
0: It was worth a try. And here's the thing, I actually spoke to someone who was in the program. They told me about some of their experiences, and apparently, Well, it didn't sound all that ethical.
1: Is that right?
0: Based on what they told me, yeah.
1: What proof do you have that your source is genuine?
0: I... just the merit of their word, I guess.
1: Can you tell me their name?
0: They've asked to be anonymous. I don't want to violate that trust. Shortly after Dr. Volta left the coffee shop, I got back in touch with Rogue Wolf. I asked him for some form of evidence to back up his claim of having been in the program, for the sake of being thorough, and whether I could discuss his case with someone off the record. Volta requested I reach out to him with anything else that I learned about Hunter. We spoke a while longer, and I pressed him with more questions, but there weren't many more answers he could give me. He was… not as bad as I expected pretty standoffish, like every second of his time was more precious than a year of my life could ever be. I won't stretch to say that I like the guy, but I'll consider retracting my statement that he's the devil. Maybe. Honestly, though, I wouldn't be surprised to hear he sold his soul for his good looks. Most people, at least in Ekor, have seen this guy on television or in magazines, but in person, he's let's say it's not airbrushing. Dark hair, dark eyes, very tall. Granted, I'm only like 5'7", but he must be close to 6'2", maybe taller. Even at that time of the evening, he was dressed to impress in a black three-piece suit that fit like a glove, somehow perfectly rugged and the most put-together man I've ever seen at the same time. But looking good does not justify someone's actions. He might not have held me down and forced experimental science on me at the table, but the verdict is still out on whether there's a soul behind that self-satisfied, strategic smile. His dogs are great, though. Apollo and Zeus. They're both Dobermans, and they're trained enough to respond to the tap of his foot. Not very professional of me, but I did beg to pet them. (laughs) They're perfect. Okay, back to today's main story. This won't be the last we're hearing from Dr. Volter, so don't worry.
2: This is Alex Kelly for Echor City News. I'm here at the site where the arrest was made just five hours ago. The suspect has been identified as Charles Delaney, thought to be responsible for three horrifying deaths that have shaken the city in the last three months.
0: Charles Delaney was a 53-year-old bank associate from Gracefield, a large township in Echor County on the other side of the lake. He was also a shade. Delaney was arrested on November 18, 2014, and later convicted for murder in the third degree for the killing of three victims, all of whom exhibited partial mutations and signs of veil sickness.
2: To all who knew him, Delaney was a quiet and unassuming man. Charles? Um, Yeah, he was boring. Too boring to be capable of anything like murder. They've definitely got the wrong guy. Delaney lived alone in a rented house close to the bank branch he worked in. He enjoyed fishing on the lake and a few beers with his colleagues on a Friday after work. He was perpetually single, living a simple life in a small lakeside
0: township. Those who knew him claimed Charles to be distrustful of women. In part, this was due to a difficult relationship with his alcoholic mother, who had raised him and his younger sister between a series of motel rooms over the years. On March 27, 2014, around eight months before his arrest, Delaney's sister Mary was involved in a motor incident in which her car was struck by an out-of-control truck not far from Power station on the interstate. Unfortunately, she died at the scene. Delaney's colleagues cite him to have become more and more depressed through the months that followed, withdrawing from social activities and frequently missing work. By August, he stopped attending his shifts entirely. One colleague by the name of Janice Green recalls stopping by his house on three separate occasions to check on him.
2: You visited Charles when he first stopped showing up at work.
0: What was that like?
3: Charles was a wreck. The first time I knocked, he wouldn't take the chain off the door. He spoke to me from inside, and all his curtains were drawn, so it was dark. He told me he wasn't feeling well, and that he'd call the bank about it so there was nothing for me to worry about. He didn't seem well, so I took his word for it. But something didn't feel right.
2: And the times after that?
3: The second time, there was no response at all. I looked through a gap in the curtains, and I can see him moving around inside, pacing back and forth, but no matter how much I knocked, he wouldn't answer. The third time was about a month later.
2: What happened on your third visit?
3: I realized the door was unlocked, so I decided to just go in. I was really worried he'd done something to himself because no one had seen or heard from him in nearly a month. People at work were speculating whether he'd do something like that or not. Whether he was the type. Calling out his name, there was still no response. The place looked like a cesspit. I don't know how else to describe it. Like a hoarder lived there. Charles wasn't like that. He was always very obsessive about cleaning.
2: Did you see Delaney at all at this time?
3: I did. There was a noise upstairs. I was terrified. But if I'd left and found out later something had happened, I would have never forgiven myself. I was halfway up the stairs when I saw him. He looked like a monster. I thought I was looking at a demon. I left as quickly as I could. I only realized later, all those months, he must have had the affliction.
0: Delaney's mutations manifested as long, thorn-like protrusions that covered his face and arms. Looking at a picture of him, it's easy to see how his silhouette in the dark may not have looked human. In the five months between his sister's tragic death and Miss Green's final visit to his home, Charles Delaney had become a shade. He insisted that it had no correlation to the accusations of murder, which he denied throughout the trial until the last, when the defense attempted to reduce the sentence to manslaughter, unsuccessfully. In the courtroom, Delaney was kept in a sealed plastic room to prevent the spread of veil sickness whilst he was on the defendant's stand. Here's a statement from him during the trial.
3: I've been staying home since August. I get groceries delivered and they're left on the stoop. I I don't go out. I, have, have you looked at me? I. How can I go out to do anything, let alone to, to kill someone? I mean, have you seen what I look
0: like? But regardless of his claims to the contrary, there is no doubt that Delaney's transformation into a shade resulted in significant changes to his mental state. Delaney had been struggling with debt the previous year and had volunteered for a paid medical trial by Auger in early 2014 that included a psychological assessment. The results were released as evidence during the trial and a secondary assessment was made for comparison. In just six months, Delaney's personality appeared to have done a 180. So what happened between early March and November 2014 that turned a solitary, grieving bank teller into a convicted murderer? Was all of this really caused just by his sister's death, and if he was so adamantly denying the charges, is Delaney really responsible for the three deaths, or did the pieces add up wrong? Is it really possible that a sickness caused by the Veil could turn someone into a cold-blooded serial killer? Would you mind answering a few questions about serial killers, Dr. Feldman? Like, what are the common traits between them? And is it possible to identify when someone might become a psychopathic murderer?
7: Should I be concerned that you've taken an interest in murderers?
0: It's for the podcast.
7: I see. Well, to start with, as much as it's thrown around, psychopathy is not a professional medical diagnosis. It is not included in the DSM and countless organizations, including those I belong to. Avoid the term. The term distorts a complex set of issues. It problematically suggests that human behavior can be categorized as simply as good and evil.
0: I'm speaking with Dr. Felix Feldman at South Point Psychiatrics. I've known him for more than a decade. If there's anyone who can shed some light on the science behind psychosis, it's Feldman. Serial killers are thought to be part of the spectrum of antisocial personality disorders, is that right?
7: You've done your research. As for common traits, serial killers can be broken down into the categories organized and disorganized.
0: What's the difference?
7: Organized killers historically have average to above average intelligence and are socially competent. They commonly partake in skilled work and were raised in a stable, higher-status home. They are often married and they have their own mode of transport. Their moods are controlled and they experience little change in mental state after committing a crime, usually moving their victims' bodies from the crime scene to hide elsewhere, and the targets are often strangers to the killer.
0: What about disorganized
7: killers? Disorganized killers exhibit the opposite traits, below average intelligence, targeting people they know, killing spontaneously, and leaving the scene in disarray. They commonly come from low status homes, with a history of harsh discipline or abuse, and they struggle with social situations. Usually they live alone, exhibit poor hygiene and housekeeping skills, and don't engage with romantic or sexual relationships. When they kill, their mood changes dramatically. Whilst there are indicators in childhood, it's not possible to predict when someone's behavior will evolve into the desire to kill. Commonly serial killers commit violent acts as children, such as starting fires, or hoarding animals. Many wet the bed late into childhood and exhibit little empathy or fear. But others who exhibit these traits never express any violent desires in adulthood.
0: There's something I find strange here. The three murders lean strongly towards what Dr. Feldman describes as an organized killer. Two of the three victims were strangers to Delaney. None of the bodies were found at the scene of the crime. In fact, the scene of the crime was never identified. Police speculated that Delaney had a secondary location outside of his home where he took his victims and killed them, but such a place was never found. Delaney himself exhibits the behaviors of a disorganized killer. Perhaps it's a small detail, but it's strange that it doesn't add up. The three victims of the Charles Delaney killings were not connected, but there were connecting factors between their deaths. All three victims shared partial mutations and lingering veil sickness, which was discovered post-mortem, with an unidentified oil-like substance in their lungs, unquestionably connecting the three murders. I reached out to Detective Jason Rowe at the Gracefield PD, a prominent figure involved with the case, to find out more. What can you tell me about the connections between the three victims? I read that they didn't know each other, that Delaney's choices in victims seemed random,
6: That does seem to be the case. But all three victims shared some level of debt, as did Delaney himself. Although two of them lived in Echor, not Gracefield, where Delaney lived, all three banked with Crest, the bank he worked for.
0: Would he have been able to access personal details through his position?
6: Not everything. But it was evidence at the trial that he could have found their names, addresses, and emails that way. There's a lot you can find about someone once you have those details.
0: I bet. You could probably set about doing anything with that information. Were there other similarities between the victim's profiles?
6: All of them were single individuals, living alone. No particular connections to speak of. It's likely Delaney targeted lonely people, like himself. People no one was going to miss.
0: But Delaney did know one of the victims, right? Kaylor Tanners? How did they know each other?
6: Tanner's worked at the bar where Charles would drink on Friday nights. The Fool House. It's a popular place here in Gressfield.
0: Had they interacted much?
6: Not as such. Delaney watched Tanner's on multiple occasions whilst she was working. Uh, We found her personal diary while searching her home. She said she felt uncomfortable with the level of interest he showed in her.
0: Kaylor Tanners was the last of Delaney's three victims. It was the discovery of her body that would eventually lead the police to Delaney's arrest. Tanners was found on the Gracefield shore of Lake Ecor, having floated up after coming loose from weights keeping her beneath the surface. In the end, it was the presence of Delaney's DNA in Tanners' home that saw him put behind bars for life. As a Shade, Delaney was placed in an isolated security wing of Echo County Penitentiary, where he couldn't pose a passive threat to other inmates or prison officers. So, you may ask, what's so controversial about this case? It seems cut and dry.
6: It is evident to us that Delaney is a very troubled man, suffering from a deeply depressive state, struggling greatly with his transformation into a Shade. We believe an inability to accept what he has become has led him to intentionally attempt to inflict his condition on others. It wouldn't be the first time we've seen something like this.
0: The main question is, did Delaney's transformation simply influence the decision to kill, or was it fully responsible? Did becoming a shade affect his cognition and give him violent tendencies? And if so, do shades pose a threat to public safety? With so little research on them at present, it's impossible to give a solid answer. My personal opinion is that it's doubtful. I've met shades before, and I can happily report that I walked away unscathed. I think it's far more likely that Delaney experienced some sort of breakdown after going through a series of traumatic events. After a severe trauma, it's common to develop habits and insecurities even adopt new behaviors to cope. Not everyone with trauma is going to commit acts of violence, but it is possible for it to manifest that way. However, something about the story is bugging me. Talk it through with me. What's not right about it? Okay, the timing of it is complicated with the murders and his transformation, so I've made a timeline.
2: Oh, look at you go, little detective.
0: Hit me with it. Delaney's colleague Green made her first visit to his home 15 weeks before his arrest, which would be the first week of August. She says that the first time he kept the chain on and it was dark. She couldn't see his face.
2: Right. So she couldn't say if he was a shade or not at that point.
0: Yeah. However, the second time she visited was two weeks later. She says she looked through a gap in the curtains and saw him walking around inside. Delaney had already stopped turning up to his shifts at the bank at that point, but nothing in her statement implies she saw any sort of physical mutations on him. So he
2: wasn't a Shade yet? We don't know.
0: The exact date of Delaney's transformation was never made public, if anyone knows when it was. Then a month later, Green enters Delaney's home and bam! Shade. That's about the third week of September. It could have taken all that time to fully mutate. Nate says he's seen Veil Sickness patients suffer for weeks. Right. Maybe he was already afflicted the first time she visited, but if he was, it took at least six weeks for him to transform. I don't get it. What's the issue, then? Well, all Delaney's victims were partially mutated, right? But Kayla Tanner's was only missing for two weeks. That's, like, a significant difference in the speed of mutation. And the first victim was found in early September. Before Delaney had mutated! Exactly! Doesn't that strike you
2: as kind of weird? Definitely! But I mean... We don't know how any of it works, like you said. I'm just too powerful to understand biology. One of the pitfalls of being a god, I guess. (laughs) Science crumbles under my gaze.
0: (laughs) How could I ever forget?
2: I know, it's a lot for your mortal brain. Try not to hurt yourself thinking about it while I'm clearing tables. (laughs) Cappuccino for Katie.
0: I might not understand the science, but I know someone who will. Thank you for agreeing to speak with me again, Dr. Volter.
1: Do you have more information on Hunter?
0: I'm waiting on an email back from someone who's used it before. I'll forward you what I find out.
1: That would be appreciated.
0: If you don't mind, I have a question on a different subject.
1: Am I being recorded right now? I'm not your personal encyclopedia, Mr. Fenn.
0: I know, sorry. I'm not gonna press you for answers about Alpha again. I just wanted a professional opinion on something to do with cell mutation. I don't know who else to ask. Make it quick. Thank you. Uh, does your department do any research into shades?
1: Not at present. That would be the responsibility of the Vale Research Department.
0: Are they researching shades right now? It's
1: a small department. Most of them are just rift chasers.
0: Right. I don't know if you'll have an answer for me then, but my question was, is there any correlation between the speed of mutation in one subject and the mutation of a second subject infected by the first? Hmm.
1: Speaking broadly, no matter the organism, mutation rates are never constant. They can differ even between different regions of the genome of a single species. However, mutations in intergenic DNA have a tendency to accumulate at a faster rate than mutations in DNA that is active in gene expression. That remains fairly universal across any form of genetic mutation, and I imagine the same for shades.
0: I have no idea what you just said. (laughs) That was uh, another language, wasn't it?
1: Physical mutations that result in traits we can see with just our eyes are slower than cellular-level mutations.
0: So, even if there's no solid research into it, it's likely that physical mutations in shades are secondary to actually becoming one. Someone could be a shade before it's obvious.
1: In theory, yes.
0: Is there any way to speed up the mutation in... active DNA by force? In
1: laboratory conditions, very likely. Outside of a controlled environment, it's down to whatever conditions the mutation occurs under.
0: So theoretically, it is possible that Charles Delaney was capable of spreading his affliction before his physical transformation was complete. And perhaps being sunk below the water of the lake provided the right conditions to accelerate the transformation of Kaler Tanners. However, it also seems less likely that he could spread it to his first victim and cause partial mutation in them before he himself had transformed. I don't have the answers. I don't really have much in the way of theories either, but I feel like we're missing pieces to fully understand what happened to the Delaney victims. I make no claim that Delaney is innocent, just that there is a chance of it. That someone set him up, or law enforcement saw him as an obvious answer that their prejudices against Shades blinded them to other possibilities. Maybe, and I know North would tell me I'm getting ridiculous here, but someone who wanted to raise prejudice against Shades could be behind the murders. The Charles Delaney case put people on edge across the continent. The question of how much of a threat Shades posed only really began to circulate after his arrest. It'd be an easy way to make it happen. Maybe we'll never know.
2: As far as we know,
3: it could happen to anyone. It could happen to you or your loved
2: ones. You can stay inside during the veil lights all you like, but we don't know nearly enough
0: about the veil to predict these so-called anomalies. They could get you on your way home from work, on your lunch break, even in your sleep. The thing is, we have to accept that shades are out there. Fear is only going to cause a greater divide between us and these people who are at the basis level just affected by a condition that we don't understand. The lack of research into shades has to change if we're going to learn how to coexist. So the next time you see or hear about a shade, stop and think to yourself for a second. If it were me, how would I want to be treated? Thank you for listening to the Night Shift Podcast. Next time, we'll be exploring various unsolved cases of disappearances in Ekra City with North, who is probably more interested in true crime than they should be, plus an update on the drug Hunter. And with any luck, I'll have heard back from Rogue Wolf, the ex-Alpha who's ready to spill all. Sorry for the shitty sound, I'm recording this on my phone. Uh, It's a piece of crap, but it'll do. I don't have time to re-record everything else to fit this in. It is 3 a.m. I can't sleep, so I've been deep diving online and I found, I found something, I think. There is another death in the Charles Delaney case. There is a fourth death as far as I can find. Uh, Delaney is still in lockup at Eckhart County Penitentiary, but another body was found in 2016 with the same M.O. I'm talking weird substance in the lungs, everything. It's out of the ECPD jurisdiction because it floated up in a river near the state border, but the coroner's report states that the body had been in the water for a while. And don't ask me how I got the coroner's report, you know how internet deep dives can be. I've been looking up how fast bodies decompose in water, and there's variables. Where the water is running or cold, it can preserve a body longer, but not, like, two years longer. There's no way this person was killed before Delaney got locked up. What does this mean? It's gotta mean that he's innocent, right? Charles Delaney was framed? Or there's a copycat killer somehow. (laughs) It can't be a coincidence. And why the hell didn't this make it into the news? I knew there was more to this story. I've got more dignity. I've got more digging to do. I'll see what I can find out until next time. Shift Podcast is hosted by Sebastian Fenn, produced in Echo City by Nocturne Studios. If you're enjoying our show, we'd love for you to rate and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere you're listening. Production coordinated and managed by Angie Gahn and Ray Archer. Associate producers Ash Pendragon and Sasha Alexandra. Opening theme by Pastiche. Original music by Contagion. Additional voices by V. Black Doug Nesbitt, Ali Nesbitt, Ash Pendragon, Sam B. Nguyen, Eric Raymond, Juwan Royal, Jenny Higgs, Nick Kelgard, Adriana Cazador, Julian Sanchez, Adam Clark, and Victor Valdeon. Special thanks to our executive producers, Sophia Johansson, Emily Hogarth, and Katie B. If you have enjoyed today's episode and would like to support us, you can do so on Ko-Fi at ko-fi.com slash nightshift or on our crowdfund coming soon. Got a conspiracy to share with us? You can follow us online on Twitter and Instagram at NightshiftCast.